At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 47, Prelude to Occupation. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about Cold War history, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation to the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Don't forget to check out the website for pictures that correspond to this episode. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Last episode, we examined the forces behind the rise of the Japanese Empire, its decline and ultimate fall in 1945. In this episode, we're going to examine the factors that influenced the thinking around the American occupation of Japan, the plan around the occupation, and the lead-up to the occupation. Looking at the events that unfolded before the Americans arrived and the opening ceremonies of the occupation. As always, please forgive me for any mispronunciations. Moreover, as a warning, towards the end of this episode, we cover the topic of prostitution in Japan, which some listeners may find disturbing. Even as the war still raged, American planners, politicians, and even influential citizens started to think about what to do with Japan after the war. As early as 1939, the Council on Foreign Relations started to think about what the future of Asia might look like. Ideas around Japan and its future occupation were also built around ideas circulated in the media by prominent journalists like Walter Lippmann and academic articles which circulated between government officials and politicians. The First World War also influenced American ideas around Japan and the occupation. For one, it was the reason FDR had called for an unconditional surrender of the Axis powers. After the First World War, Germany was left unoccupied. This was seen as a critical failure in preventing the Second World War and the Allies didn't want to deal with a remilitarized Japan again in another 20 years. Most believed Japan would need to be conquered and reformed. It would need to be made clear to Japan that they were defeated. A peace treaty or an armistice that left Japan with some of her territory and or allowed her to save face would not eliminate Japan as a future danger to the United States and her neighbors in the Pacific. Roosevelt wanted China to take Japan's place as a leading power in Asia and Japan to be marginalized. If you remember from our episode on the United Nations, Roosevelt wanted China to become one of his world policemen. However, many people in the State Department assumed that Japan, and not China, would still be the dominant power in Asia. In the post-World War, and saw FDR's aspirations for China at best as far-fetched, or at worst, a joke. Roosevelt had a personal connection with China, which may have colored his view. His maternal grandfather had made his fortune trading tea and opium in Canton, and his mother had grown up in Hong Kong as a young girl. As a child, FTR heard stories about Hong Kong and China, and their home was filled with artifacts from China. These pro-Chinese ideas were probably reinforced as well by the popular media of the time, 
which viewed the nationalist regime, the Kuomintang, as having many shared values with America. The Kuomintang had defined itself through its opposition to the Manchu imperial dynasty and the Communist Party. Thus, nationalist China tied its political legitimacy to the idea of a unified China marked by a rule-based political system with a market economy, as opposed to a classical authoritarian rule or communist totalitarianism, which was in line with Americans' concepts of modernity and good governance. Beyond this, there was a considerable number of U.S.-educated members of the Kuomintang Party. FDR enjoyed good relations with Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, who was Christian, spoke fluent English with a slight Georgian accent, and was educated in the United States. FDR, moreover, had some very unpleasant racist ideas which colored his view on Japan. FDR believed that races had certain traits and that people carried these traits in their blood. He believed Japanese people with their Asiatic blood could not assimilate into white European society and that these races shouldn't mix. He believed that Asian genetic influences would be detrimental to the future of the American people. Even before the outbreak of World War II, Roosevelt suggested the establishment of concentration camps for Japanese Americans in 1936 if there was a war between the U.S. and Japan. Unfortunately, Roosevelt was not alone in these beliefs. Many people at the time were afraid of an influx of Asians into California. If you remember from episode one, ideas about eugenics and the inherited traits of people were widely believed in this period. It wasn't until the 1990s that we had fully sequenced DNA and understood how closely all people are related. Many people at the time saw the differences between races as the differences between species and the ways humans and Neanderthals are different. There was even a small contingent within the government who wished to exterminate the Japanese people after the war, akin to the Nazis and the Holocaust, but these ideas, I should stress, were never entertained by the U.S. government officially, in contrast to the Third Reich, where it was official policy. It should also be pointed out that racism and racial tropes during the Japanese occupation was a two-way street. The Japanese had very unpleasant and inaccurate views of their own of their would-be American occupiers. In the beginning of the war, as we have seen, they viewed the Americans as weak playboys who couldn't stomach war or later as bloodthirsty barbarians. After the war, ironically, many Japanese felt that the Americans worked better as a group than Japanese, which is ironic as the Americans thought the exact opposite. They also came to see the Americans as a kind and friendly people. Officially, in the early days of the war, a small subcommittee in the State Department started to meet and talk about what to do with Japan and the future of Asia after the war. The debate around what to do with Asia and post-war Japan was dominated by two groups within the State Department, the China Hands and the Japan Hands. Academically, only two nations in Asia had been extensively studied and researched in America at the time, China and Japan. Therefore, most of the Asian experts the State Department hired were either knowledgeable of Chinese or Japanese culture and had either studied in Japan or China. Very few were knowledgeable about both or studied or knew about the rest of Asia. As a consequence, both sides disliked the other, which might have been a prejudice they learned while studying in their respective societies. They shared a profound disagreement over the start of the war and the way in which Japan needed to be reformed. Many of the Japan experts, like former U.S. Ambassador to Japan Joseph Gru, believed that Japan had been hijacked by militarists, that Japan could be reformed by restoring the old progressives to power in Japan from the 1920s. However, they also believed in the interim Japan was incapable of democracy. Gru, the leading advocate of the Japanese hands, was an assistant U.S. Secretary of State and part of the American East Coast elite and had been a former ambassador to Japan since 1928. 
He and FDR had also gone to Groton together and were boyhood friends. As a result, he stayed on as ambassador to Japan for Roosevelt. He never learned any Japanese, but was well-suited to the elite culture of upper-class Japan, and the Japanese seemed to have liked him. Gru also had a historical connection with Japan, which enhanced his status. His wife was the grandniece of Commodore Perry. Given his inability to speak Japanese, his ideas about the Japanese people were highly influenced by the ideas of the Japanese elite. The Japan hands believed that Japan had legitimate grievances with the way the West had treated Japan in the 1920s and 1930s. They argued that the Japanese were rational actors and would cooperate with the Americans in rebuilding their nation. Moreover, they contended that Japan's hatred of the West was not deeply rooted and only a result of Western mistreatment. They argued economic growth and access to international trade should be tied to Japanese reintegration into the international community. This, they argued, would dissuade Japan from rearming in the long term by appealing to Japan's national interests. They believed open access to trade with free markets for manufacturer goods and raw materials would create peace and prosperity across the region. The China hands believed that the Japanese were racially and or culturally warlike and that Japan's pre-war grievances were mere pretexts for naked expansionism. They called for Japan to bear a heavy price for starting the war and wanted Japan to pay reparations to China for the damage that they had caused. The China hands were also backed up by Secretary of State Cordell Hall. He had a long and frustrating relationship in trying to work with the Japanese through the 1930s and early 1940s to prevent war between Japan and the United States. He viewed the Japanese as duplicitous and expansionist. The China hands view also held considerable influence with the president and outside the government with the media and American people. The American public, conditioned by the war propaganda, saw Japan as a barbaric nation beyond the pale of civilized behavior. Beyond the China and Japanese hands, there were other theories about the origins of the war in the Pacific. Some academics had argued that Japan had been pushed to expansionism for economic and demographic reasons. They explained that Japan's overpopulation and limited resources had led the Japanese to expansionist foreign policies. Others argued that Japan's deep economic inequality, a holdover from feudal Japan, had fueled Japan's militarism. These ideas would have a major influence on the occupation in breaking up the zaibatsu, land reform, and labor reform. British intellectuals also influenced the debate around the occupation of Japan. Most Orientalists, a term used at the time for those who studied Asia, believed, like the Japanese hands, that Japan was incapable of democratic government. They argued that the Japanese had a herd mentality and were incapable of operating democratic institutions. These views were in themselves not just the products of ethnocentrism or racism. Many academics and diplomats who had spent time in Japan were told such things by the Japanese elite about their own people. Nevertheless, many liberals at the time believed that democratic values were universal and could be instituted in Japan or any country. Behavioral scientists were one such group who believed that the Japanese character was malleable and capable of democratic government. At the same time, the Japanese hands came to be seen within the State Department as too close to their old Japanese friends. They weren't seen as traitors in any sense, just too corrupt, theoretically speaking, by the, their time in Japan. In the end, it was the China hands who were harsher on the Japanese elites and made more open to the possibility of changing Japanese society that won the policy debate. It was George Atkinson Jr., a China specialist and not one of the State Department's Japan experts, that was posted to MacArthur's headquarters in Tokyo. Indeed, most of the Japanese specialists remained stateside during the occupation. 
Those that did make it to Japan found themselves sent off to Okinawa, which was a virtual American prison camp, as the United States turned the island into a fortress with bases and airfields. There was very little for a Japan expert to do there. Those that made it to Japan proper found themselves doing low-level grassroots work with little or no input when it came to policy. Unlike in the Allied occupation of Germany, the Treasury Department did not play a major role in the occupation of Japan. The Treasury Secretary, Henry Morthergrew, who was able to use his personal relationship with FDR to have an influence in the occupation of Germany with the death of Roosevelt in April 1945, lacked a similar relationship with Truman, and the State Department kept him out of the planning for Japan. As an effect of this decision, economic matters did not receive an equal voice in policy debates, and in some ways this might have hindered Japan's economic recovery. As a result of this, the American authorities took no responsibility for the economic prosperity of Japan in the early years of the occupation, apart from preventing economic crisis. It should also be remembered that Japan was an enemy-occupied nation, not an ally. The Americans saw their first priority as helping their allies rebuild, namely Britain and France, versus Japan's recovery. In 1943, FDR met with Churchill and Chiang Kai-shek in Cairo about the future of Asia after World War II. FDR also asked Chiang if China could lead the occupation of Japan and provide the majority of the troops to occupy the nation after the war. Roosevelt believed an occupation of Japan by another Asian power would have better optics, appear less imperialistic, and be less costly to the United States. Chiang, although he was willing to send troops, respectfully declined FDR's offer of leading the occupation of Japan. Chiang feared he lacked the logistical capabilities to manage a successful occupation of Japan and he worried that the occupation of Japan might devolve into a long-term guerrilla war. In another interesting note of history, FDR offered Okinawa to China. Historically, Okinawa had been an independent kingdom until it was incorporated into Japan in 1879. For similar reasons, Chiang turned down the ownership of Okinawa. He did, however, accept the return of Manchuria and Formosa to China. Great Britain and China also endorsed the U.S. retaining control of the former League of Nations Mandate Islands in the Central Pacific, which had been turned over to Japan's safekeeping after Germany's defeat in World War I. Stalin himself also backed American territorial claims in the Central Pacific at Tehran in 1943 in order to prevent the Japanese from becoming aggressive again in the future. These islands were remote and sparsely populated by their native inhabitants, but through the construction of bases and airfields, the United States could project its power into the eastern Pacific, denying them to any future aggressors. It was also important, though, that the U.S. should receive control of the islands through the U new United Nations. Roosevelt didn't want the U.S. to appear to be yet another imperialist power, as territorial expansion had just been explicitly rejected by the U.S. in the Atlantic Char Charter and the Cairo Declaration. The United States sought to use its military bases and free trade as an alternative to the classical imperialism which had been practiced by the Europeans the last 450 years. For example, the U.S. was already planning to grant the Philippines independence even before the war began, with the assumption that the United States would retain its bases and economic influence in the new nation. During the war, some of this thought was applied to Japan's former colonies like Korea and to Japan itself, and to this day, America retains a significant economic influence with both these nations. Although, I should note, South Korea and Japan also greatly benefited from American economic trade with the United States in a way that did not happen under classical imperialism. India and Jamaica never supplied manufactured products to Great Britain, 
nor did they purchase British businesses and real estate like Japan and South Korea have done with the United States. Moreover, both the South Korean and Japanese governments have welcomed the continued presence of American forces there, despite the views of some of their citizens. To this end, it was decided in 1944 that the occupation of Japan should move through three distinct phases. The first phase would be one of stern discipline. During this phase, the Americans would illustrate to the Japanese that they were a defeated power. They would be occupied and policed by the victors and war criminals punished for their crimes. During the second phase, Japan would be transitioned to a democratic and self-governing nation under the supervision of the Allied powers. The Japanese people would be convinced that they would benefit from international cooperation. The Allies would support democratic institutions. It was also decided that Japan would not have to pay reparations after the war, although Japan did end up paying reparations in the 1950s. Finally, in the third stage, Japan would re-enter the international community of nations. It was also decided that the United States should administer Japan alone, unlike Germany, which was carved into zones of occupation. Moreover, the lack of Japanese-speaking experts on Japan made direct American governance of Japan impossible. Therefore, the occupation of Japan would have to be carried out in collaboration with the existing Japanese government and bureaucracy. Japanese officials would have to be induced to cooperate. Japanese participation in the occupation of Japan and its role as a leading power in Asia after the war came into question. The Kuomintang's reputation with the American people began to fade. The corruption of the Kuomintang was well known, and it was looking as if China would once again collapse back into civil war with the defeat of Japan. In the end, none of the Asian peoples that had suffered under the yoke of Japanese imperialism would participate in the occupation of Japan. Despite the general agreement between the U.S. and the Republic of China on the future of post-war Asia, they disagreed with FDR's desire for Soviet influence in Asia. China wanted only the U.S. and China to be the dominant powers in the region. China wanted the influence of the British and the Soviets marginalized as much as possible. China saw the British as imperialist and untrustworthy, whereas the Soviets were a threat to the Kuomintang's control of the government. China was in the midst of a civil war with the Chinese Communist which had been put on hold as a result of the Japanese invasion of China proper in 1937. Historically as well, China and Russia had competing territorial claims over Manchuria. Indeed, Stalin was interested in reclaiming Russian rights over the southern section of the Chinese Eastern Railway. Americans in the State Department were also unhappy with FDR inviting the Russians to play a role in the Far East. In their view, America and China had shared the brunt of the war in fighting against Japan, why should the Soviets be given a seat at the conference table and a part of the spoils? Nevertheless, Roosevelt believed working with the Soviets would shorten the war. Despite the American victories in the Pacific and British progress in Burma, Japan still had millions of troops in China. Tying those troops down in the defense of China would mean less would be transported back to Japan to defend the home islands, meaning less Americans would die in an invasion of Japan. Moreover, as the war winded down and Japan neared defeat, there was always the risk that the Soviets would jump in and take what spoils they could, at which point America would have a lot less diplomatic leverage in the conversation. At least in this scenario, the Soviets were entering the war on America's terms. At Yalta in 1945, the Soviets agreed to enter the war against Japan two to three months after the defeat of the Third Reich. This agreement, though, was conditioned on territorial gains for the Soviets at the expense of both China and Japan. Soviets regained their lease over Port Arthur, which they had lost to the Japanese in 1905, and gained a measure of control over the railways in Manchuria. Japan would lose Sakhalin. 
Ironically, FDR approved the dismantling of his cousin, President Teddy Roosevelt's peace treaty, which had won him a Nobel Peace Prize in 1906 for ending the Russo-Japanese War. By 1945, the Army's Civil Affairs Division had taken over the responsibility for planning the occupation of Japan, which was concerned with more practical and immediate concerns in occupying a hostile area and establishing a military government. Bonner F. Fellers, the chief psychological warfare officer for MacArthur, took a lead role in planning for the occupation. As a captain in the 1930s, he had written a psychological report on the mentality of the average Japanese soldier. In their report, he predicted a war between the United States and Japan by 1939, off by only two years, and the use of suicidal tactics by the Japanese once the war had turned against them, which again came to pass. Fellers had a great deal of information about Japan, with everything from captured documents, letters, diaries from dead Japanese soldiers, translations from the press and radio addresses, and notes from interrogations of prisoners, not to mention various intelligence reports. Nevertheless, he depended on a lot on a turn-of-the-century anthropological and psychological English publications about Japan. He recognized that the emperor was probably guilty of war crimes and guilty of helping to instigate the war in the Pacific. Nevertheless, Fellers thought they could use the power and divinity of the emperor to their own ends. The idea was that the Americans would place checks on the emperor's power and then surround him with liberals through which the Americans could push forward their agenda of democratizing and demilitarizing Japan. Indeed, Fellers believed that if the Americans removed the emperor, the society would fail to operate on some level. He argued that it would be akin to removing the concept of Jesus from Christianity. Fellers also emphasized that the American occupation could not be justified on the basis of white superiority. Quote, the Oriental must be placed on the basis of absolute equality with our own people. There must be no taboo because of race, close quote. Fellers himself had close ties to Japan as his cousin had married a Japanese diplomat, Terasaki Haidenari, who was attached to the imperial court and worked as a liaison with the Americans, including Fellers. I want to take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Recently, I received a request to move the show to a weekly schedule versus a twice-a-month schedule. We would love to do this, but we currently lack the, the listenership and resources, a.k.a. money, to make that happen. So if you want to see the show become a weekly episode, become a Patreon supporter, make a donation, or more importantly, help us spread the word about the podcast to get more listeners. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like episodes about Asian history, like this episode, or episodes about the Malayan emergency or the French war in Indochina, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. As we have another episode about Japan's occupation coming up and episodes about the Chinese Civil War. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so that you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. The Americans arrived in Japan with briefings on the Japanese and papers outlining the Japanese people, some of which was insightful, but much of which was inaccurate. The Americans assumed that the occupation would last no more than three years. In all, the occupation of Japan, which began in August of 1945, would last for six years and eight months, almost twice the length of the war, ending in April 1952. During those years, Japan had no sovereignty, no diplomatic relations, and no Japanese were allowed to travel abroad until the occupation was almost over. No major political, administrative, or economic decisions were taken without American approval. 
no public criticism of the American authorities was permissible. The American occupation wasn't imperialist or colonial as the United States did not begin the war with Japan. Moreover, Japan was a modern industrialized nation. It was not an underdeveloped nation, but one of the leading powers in the world at the time of their defeat. Japan itself was guilty of brutal imperialist policies against many of its Asian neighbors. Its policies had been just as brutal as the Belgians in Congo or the Spanish in the New World. Nevertheless, the occupation of Japan had shades of colonialism to it. A predominantly white European state had taken complete control over an Asian nation. Japan was openly considered exotic, pagan, and viewed with Orientalist ideas that carried with it the baggage of bigotry and colonialism. General MacArthur himself saw the occupation of Japan as a Christian mission, and many occupation officials viewed America's occupation of Japan through the lens of the white man's burden, and throughout the occupation, there was the basic belief that American values and culture was superior to that of Japan. The occupation, as you could expect, was very influenced by American history, especially the New Deal and ideas around labor reform and the Bill of Rights. Ironically, these ideas weren't emphasized or carried out in the same way for the American occupation of Okinawa, Germany, or South Korea. Indeed, many of the ideas and programs we will see could never have been proposed, let alone implemented, in the United States. Despite all the massive political, social, and cultural changes between the imperial Japanese regime and that of the American occupation, there was some level of continuity for the Japanese. Fundamentally, Japan was under military rule from the 1930s until 1952. The only thing that changed was the military, from Japanese to American. The emperor as well continued to be used as a symbolic force within Japan to legitimize the policies of the state. For Japan as well, the occupation with all of its changes and social upheaval was akin to the modernization and social upheaval Japan had embarked on in the 1850s and 1860s, both of which were sparked by the entry of the Americans into Tokyo Bay. Change in many ways had been a status quo in Japan, as Japan had changed drastically over the last century. Both Imperial Japan and Occupied Japan had its demons. The Americans had been demonized and were now popularized as modern and progressive, and the old generals and militarists were demonized as obsolete and backward feudal elements. A wartime emphasis on purity was shifted to the purification of war criminals and nationalist elements from Japanese society. Moreover, revolution from above or imposed reforms were nothing new in Japan. Since the Meiji Restoration, elites had imposed economic, political, social, cultural changes on Japan with little input from the wider Japanese society. When the Americans arrived, they were prepared for the worst. They anticipated traumatic confrontations with fanatical emperor worshippers. You could assume that this attitude was built on the racism of the era, but it was also largely based on real-life experience from fighting the Japanese across the Pacific. The Japanese had fought tenaciously, often to the last man. Suicide attacks were the norm, and surrender was rare. Nevertheless, when they arrived, they were greeted by an almost entirely different type of people. The Japanese were very polite. They often presented the Americans with gifts, even when they had very little to give. Most of all, most Japanese people were sick of the war and contemptuous of the Japanese militarists who had ruined their nation. The defeat of Japan to most Japanese had been a profound event. The old institutions of the emperor, military, and the society's structure in general had been thrown into question. The mystique of racial solidarity that had been sa saturated wartime propaganda disappeared overnight. Japanese began to rethink who they were as a people and what type of society Japan should be. Indeed, 
the first Americans didn't arrive for two weeks after the surrender. Even before the Americans arrived, the Japanese had already started to wrestle with the idea of defeat and what it meant for them on a personal level and as a society. The end of the war didn't produce a singular response in Japan. The emperor's broadcast had come to the vast majority of Japanese people as a shock. It should be remembered that they had never heard the voice of the emperor before this broadcast, and he was considered by most to be a semi-divine being. Some people in Tokyo made their way to the imperial palace, where they kneeled on the ground in front of the palace, bowing in sorrow and shame for having failed to live up to the emperor's expectations. Many felt as though their lives had lost all purpose. Others felt pure joy at having survived the war with all of its destruction and death, and some people actually began to celebrate and cheer in front of the palace. Several hundred individuals, many of whom were military officers, committed suicide, just as many Nazi officials and military officers had when Germany had been defeated. Other officers and government officials started to burn and destroy documents that could be used to prosecute them for war crimes. Support for socialism and communism exploded overnight, as did organized labor. Mid-level bureaucrats also emerged as an important force in reform. The most principled resistance to the war had come from the communists. This gave them considerable status in the early post-war Japan. They became the heroes and celebrities in a society where the old heroes and celebrities had been toppled. On September 2, 1945, the Americans began to enact phase one of their occupation. A massive American armada sailed into Tokyo Bay composed of 11 battleships, 5 carriers, 15 cruisers, and 61 destroyers. In an imposing ceremony on the U.S. battleship Missouri, representatives of the nine Allied powers met with the officials of the Imperial Empire of Japan and signed the Instrument of Surrender. I have some pictures of this on the website. The ceremony was laden with symbolism. Missouri was the home state of the president. One of the American flags that were on display had flown over the White House on December the 7th, the day the war had begun. Another flag on display was rushed from Annapolis and was the flag flown by Commodore Perry's flagship when he had entered Tokyo Bay back in 1853. Indeed, MacArthur was a distant relative of Perry. After the final signing, the sky was darkened in one of the greatest flyovers ever, as 400 B-29 bombers flew over Tokyo Bay, followed by 1,500 Navy fighter planes. MacArthur also ordained that no Japanese be allowed to wear his sword after the formal surrender ceremony, a significant blow to the Japanese militarist and the samurai tradition. The two Japanese that represented the Japanese government in surrendering were General Umuzu Yushiro of the Imperial Armed Forces and the diplomat Shigemitsu Mamuru, representing the imperial government. Surprisingly, to many in the crowds and to those who later watched the broadcast, the emperor did not participate in the surrender ceremony, nor did any members or representatives of the imperial household. Many had assumed that the emperor would sign the act of surrender, or at the very least, a relative on his behalf. Many Japanese took the absence of the emperor as a good omen of things to come. The terms of surrender committed the victors to liberate the Japanese from a, a quote, condition of slavery and to ensure the energies of the Japanese race were turned into constructive channels and the prospects of Japan expanding vertically rather than horizontally, close quote. Many Japanese were heartened by the tone of the surrender and that they would be treated fairly. Other Japanese, though, felt that they were mere flatteries and that the occupation of Japan would mean the doom of the Japanese people. The once-proud Empire of Japan had been grounded into the dust and their imperial hopes and aspirations snuffed out. The future remained frighteningly uncertain. The enormity of Japan's humiliation had only just begun. The once-great imperial fleet had ceased to exist. 
its merchant marine laid at the bottom of the ocean. Its air force had also ceased to exist apart from a few thousand old planes that had been held in reserve for suicide attacks. The defeated Imperial Army was scattered throughout Asia and the islands of the Pacific. In all, an estimated 2.7 million Japanese died in the war, roughly 3 to 4% of the Japanese population. Additionally, Japan had an estimated 4 to 5 million wounded, ill, and disabled soldiers returning home, of whom 300,000 were given disability pensions. Of those who had survived, hundreds of thousands were starving, sick, and wounded, or demoralized. All of the nation's major cities had been turned to rubble, and millions of people were homeless. 66 major cities having been bombed, 40% of Tokyo and Osaka were destroyed, and 50% of Yokohama, and 56% of Kobe, leaving about 30% of Japan's population homeless. At least a quarter of all Japan's wealth had been destroyed. This included four-fifths of all the merchant ships, one-third of Japan's machine tools were destroyed, and almost a quarter of their rolling stock and automobiles. Rural living standards were calculated to have fallen 65% from pre-war levels, and urban living standards were calculated to have fallen 35%. When the first American soldiers arrived, they said that they were shocked to see mile after mile of desolated landscape. Again, I posted some pictures on the website to illustrate the scope of the destruction. 40% of Japan's factories were either destroyed or idle after the war, with 2 million industrial workers out of work. After the war, Japan struggled to restart their economy. Japan was isolated from external markets with no merchant marine and a worthless currency. Without trade, its factories couldn't produce goods to trade for raw materials and foodstuffs. The loss of empire also compounded these economic hardships. Japan had invested heavily in Manchuria's infrastructure, and it was one of the most developed parts of China, producing 90% of China's oil, 70% of its iron, 55% of its gold, 33% of its trade, 49% of its coal, and 78% of its electricity. By 1945, its per capita income was 50% higher than the rest of China and had become the most industrialized part of Asia outside of Japan. Japan could not have fought the war in China and the Pacific as long as they had without the resources and industry of Manchuria. The railway did more or less still function in Japan. Most utilities, including electricity and water, were still in working order as well. The homes and neighborhoods of the rich also survived the war, mostly intact. Ironically, American bombing had reinforced the existing social hierarchies, as the poor were disproportionately bombed. Moreover, privileged groups continued to prosper after the war as they did during the war. Despite the clear damage of American bombing on Japan, Japan also suffered from hidden effects of the war. After 1937, more and more of the nation's resources had been diverted to war. By 1940, a large share of the domestic product was being spent on the military. As a consequence, Japan had to forego construction of new schools, roads, civic centers, public libraries, as well as public housing, which left what little of Japan's infrastructure that had survived the war old and out of date. Moreover, the lack of investment in housing and the destruction of housing during the war created a backlog of demand for housing. Many Japanese slept in the subway or made homes in abandoned trolley cars or burnt-out buses. Many others built shacks out of building rubble or slept in hallways. Many lucky employees and teachers slept at their offices. Others lived in caves or holes dug into the ground with a sheet of cloth or a board to cover themselves off from the elements. The streets were filled with the demoralized ex-soldiers, widows, orphans, homeless, and the unemployed. Finding a food, finding a job, and holding their families together was the day-to-day -day existence for most Japanese. What compounded the issues and struggles of daily life was the lack of civil society in Imperial Japan. 
Besides the platitudes and propaganda of one Japanese family, Japan was a harsh place for those that were of lower social class or had fallen on hard times. There existed no strong tradition of responsibility towards strangers or philanthropy, tolerance, or even sympathy towards those who had suffered misfortune. Some of these improper people were the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki who felt the sting of this stigmatization as a result of their disfiguring radiation burns. Others were those who contracted diseases like TB. Many war or orphans having no relatives or parents were forced to become street children, living in the streets, having to steal and to become delinquents in order to survive. A 1948 government study put the number of homeless children at 123,510. Many of the teenage girls unsurprisingly turned to prostitution in order to survive. War widows also suffered as society was unkind to unmarried older women. Homeless veterans slept in Japan's train stations, parks, and sidewalks. Not all of these veterans were enlisted men either. Many were themselves officers or the sons of generals and admirals. Many of these veterans were suffering from PTSD and mental illnesses and were shunned from society, as mental illness was still considered taboo at the time. Those who had physical handicaps were treated in a similar manner. In Tokyo, such figures haunted the public places begging for money into the late 1950s. Roughly 6.5 million Japanese were stranded overseas when the war ended. Of those, 3.5 million were soldiers and sailors. The remainder were civilians, many of whom were women and children. They were middle and lower income people who had been sent out to develop Japan's imperial holdings. Many were anxious to get home now that they were stranded in often hostile lands. For many, repatriation to Japan would take months, if not years. Hundreds of thousands were destined to never return to Japan. In September 1946, a full year after Japan's surrender, over 2 million Japanese remained overseas and 540,000 were missing. Many of those who did return were ravaged by disease, thus delaying their return as they were quarantined. The spring and summer of 1946 were especially harsh in this regard as an outbreak of smallpox, typhus, and cholera ravaged China. For Japanese servicemen, their returns were delayed as they were utilized by Allied commanders in the opening stages of the Cold War. If you recall from our episodes about Indonesian independence and the French-Indochina War, the British used Japanese troops to keep order and fight independence movements until French and Dutch troops could arrive to regain control of their colonies. The Americans, in contrast, retained 70,000 Japanese POWs to help rebuild the Philippines, Okinawa, its Pacific holdings, and Hawaii. Britain, too, retained 113,500 Japanese POWs for infrastructure projects throughout the Far East, 13,500 of whom were handed over to the Dutch to work in Indonesia. Indeed, the British wouldn't repatriate their last POWs until October 1947. The total number of Japanese forces who surrendered to the Chinese is unknown. Rumor has it at least 60,000 Japanese POWs were still working for the Chinese by 1949 when the Communist People's Republic of China was established. The Soviets, though, captured the most POWs, many of whom were civilians. In all, Japan's authorities estimated that between 1.6 to 1.7 million Japanese fell into the hands of the Soviets, many of whom were transported to the Soviet gulags. By 1947, only 625,000 had been repatriated. Many of those who remained in Soviet captivity were re-educated in Marxist theories, and it became obvious by 1948 that they were delaying the repatriation of some of these prisoners to intensify indoctrination so that they might contribute to communist agitation on their return. By the spring of 1949, after significant political pressure, the Soviets agreed to release their last 95,000 POWs, 
However, according to American and Japanese sources, the Soviets still had 400,000. The last of those that survived would not be released until the 1990s. In the meantime, wives, children, and parents waited for kin to return, often learning that their loved one had died years later, or even worse, never learning anything at all. Between October 1, 1945 and December 31, 1946, over 1.5 million Japanese returned home on 200 Liberty ships and LSTs loaned by the American government, as well as what few ships Japan had left. The Allied first priority was, however, the rescue of Allied POWs and more than 100 prison camps scattered throughout Japan, the vast majority of whom were malnutritioned and suffering from tuberculosis. In liberating these camps, the Americans also learned of the outright atrocities that had been committed against their troops in enemy captivity. In all, the U.S. freed 31,617 American POWs in Japan. The Japanese had treated American POWs far worse than the Germans or Italians. Of the Americans and Commonwealth forces captured by the Germans and Italians in World War II, only 4% died. Of those who became prisoners of the Japanese, 27% died. Japan only had 56 Chinese POWs at the end of the war, as virtually all Chinese prisoners were executed upon capture with a mortality rate higher than that of the German extermination camps. By far, the largest number of foreigners in Japan at the end of World War II were other Asians the great majority of whom were Koreans who had been conscripted to perform heavy labor. When the Americans arrived, some 1.3 million lived in Japan. Many of these Asians were repatriated to their home countries. By January 1946, 630,000 Koreans had already returned home. Many Koreans and Asians who had served with the Japanese army or worked with the Japanese occupation authorities asked to be patriated to Japan after the war, and in all, some 31,000 Japanese collaborators moved to Japan. Many of the adults who returned after years abroad found that their families had been shattered. Urban neighborhoods had been obliterated. Parents, wives, and children had been killed in air raids or had dispersed to the countryside. A number of ex-soldiers returned to home to discover that they had been declared dead. Their funerals held, their wives remarried, and grave markers erected. Often their wives had been remarried to their brother or a close friend, causing more social strain. Many of the soldiers who had returned were demoralized, cynical, and contemptuous of the officers and generals who had led them. They were bitter about the futile and fanatical battles of the war, having seen their friends die in useless bondi charges or left to die from their wounds. The Japanese army was extremely strict and built on a steady diet of harsh discipline and propaganda. Superior officers often led through fear and intimidation. Even the hardened veterans weren't prepared for the shock of returning home. The communities that had sent them off to war with parades, comfort packages, and thousand-stitch belly warmers did not welcome them back. They were, after all, losers. In many parts of Japan, they were treated as pariahs or social outcasts, a reflection of the nation's defeat and sins of militarism and extreme nationalism. By 1946, when the tide of repatriations became a flood, news leaked out about the shocking and disturbing atrocities that had been committed by the Japanese army in China and the rest of Asia. Therefore, they were seen by many as not just losers, but monsters who had committed rape and murder. Some frankly and sincerely expressed regret for their crimes. Others protested their innocence and the injustice of being treated like war criminals, like those who had served in the Imperial Navy and had not participated in the occupations. Many argued that the soldiers of the war were victims of the war as well, and that the generals and politicians were responsible for the conduct of the war. In the wake of the defeat, discipline collapsed and men stationed in the home islands deserted their units in droves. 
many came home with loot from military stores. Even those who had been kamikaze pilots who were prepared to sacrifice themselves in the final battle broke down and participated in the looting of military stocks. One pilot even loaded his plane up and flew home with looted goods. The enlisted men were not alone in looting army stocks. Officers as well participated in the looting. The greatest fear of Japan before the arrival of the Americans was the actual occupation. Japan had conducted brutal occupations of China, the Philippines, Indochina, Singapore, Malaya, and Indonesia, which included harsh treatment of civilian populations, looting, mass rape, and indiscriminate violence. They were deeply afraid that the Americans were about to repay the favor. Families were urged to send their female family members out to the countryside. Women were also instructed to dress unattractively and cautioned not to appear friendly. No matter what happened, the Japanese knew that they would have hundreds of thousands of young American soldiers with sexual desires occupying their nation. To address this issue, they wanted brothels and prostitutes ready to service these needs. The Japanese army had a tradition of serving their own troops with, quote, comfort women during the war. The local police chiefs were instructed to establish brothels for the coming Americans, and they worked with local pimps in providing ladies to work the brothels. The government also put up 50 million yen to fund the project with the hope that the pimps would help to put up the other half of the funds. The idea was that these women would be a shield protecting the chastity of Japan's women. Thus, culturally, these women were not seen in a derogatory light or as traitors, but as martyrs akin to the kamikaze pilots. Like the kamikaze, there was a historical tradition for their function in Japanese society. Okichi was revered in Japanese society for being the consort of Towson Harris, the first American consul back in 1856. The government had hoped that professional prostitutes would come forward and sacrifice themselves for the nation, but they proved to be reluctant, as they were reported to be fearful of their rumored larger American penis, which they feared would injure them. The organizers then began a public campaign to recruit ordinary women to the cause by posting large billboards that somewhat vaguely asked Japanese women to serve their country. The vast majority of women who arrived to be interviewed arrived shabbily dressed as they were poor. Most had no experience in the sex trade, and most left when they learned what their duties would be. Many of those who stayed said that they were not just attracted to the offers of food and shelter, but for patriotic reasons. By August, some 1,300 women had been recruited into what would become the RAA, or Recreation and Amusement Association. When the Americans first arrived, they found the, the RAA within hours. The average RAA girl engaged in sex with between 15 to 60 GIs a day. Many women quickly broke down and committed suicide or deserted. Women who served in the RAA were segregated into three classes, those who serviced white troops, those who serviced black troops, and those who serviced officers. Many girls were horrified at first to be assigned to service the black soldiers, but many came to prefer them as they said on average they were kinder than the white enlisted men. The RAA quickly spread to some 20 cities throughout Japan. The price of an RAA prostitute was about 15 yen or $1, about half the price as a pack of cigarettes at the time. The cost for the entire night was about 30 to 60 yen. Although these services didn't prevent rape and the American army would have never acted as the Japanese army had in China, the incidence of rape remained relatively low given the huge size of the American occupation force, much as the Japanese government had hoped. However, the effect of the RAA in keeping the rape rate low has been highly debated. As always, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode as we examine how the actual occupation of Japan turned out.
I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors and PayPal supporters for making this show possible. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. fitness you can get down with your judgment-free self join for only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th planet fitness has cardio weights and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of new year's champagne only one dollar down ten dollars a month no commitment now through january 15th join in club or online at planetfitness.com planet fitness the judgment-free zone offer expires january 15th stop by any of our 15 area locations annual membership fee applies participating locations only see club for details